Jeter knew W. He says, you know, you got to throw from the mound. Yeah. If you don't throw from the mound, they're going to boo you. So he borrowed a glove and he, he warmed up. And yeah, he's wearing he's wearing that Yankee jacket, but the, the Kevlar underneath. Hey everybody, what's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History. We're coming to you this week, just a couple of days before the 20th commemoration of the terrorist attacks of 9-11. It's hard to believe it's already been two decades uh, since those planes at the World Trade Center. That was a very difficult week for me. Uh, Bob Lee and I did almost all of the sports centers that week, and, and we appeared on Sports Center the day of 9-11. It wasn't called 9-11 20 years ago. We didn't know what was going on. None of us knew what was happening. Um, so I thought for this week it would be great to reminisce and bring back my good friend Bob Lee and talk about what that week was like for us and how it changed both of us forever. Uh, I was very appreciative that he was able to do it with me. Uh, so please sit back and enjoy this episode of Bob Lee and I talking about how our lives and everyone's lives in this country was changed so dramatically 20 years ago. I guess, Bob, the first thing would be, what did you remember about that morning before we got into work? Because for me, I had gone out for a run, and then I came in and saw what was happening, and you know, smoke coming from the, the first of the two towers, and then we realized what had happened, and I remember going into work thinking, why am I going into work today? And as I was pulling out of the driveway, Janice yells out the window, a bomb just went off at the Pentagon, which we later found out was another plane. Just take me through sort of what happened in your mind before we even got to the office. Well, uh, you remember what a beautiful day it was that day. Yeah, it was you know, gorgeous. The weather was just, it was yeah. one of those gorgeous days. I had just driven across the Tappan Zee two days earlier. My niece had been baptized. We're coming back from Jersey. I remember looking down the river, and from the Tappan Zee, uh, you could see the, the World Trade Center towers. You, that was, what, 40 miles? had a 40-mile view. It was gorgeous. Yeah. That particular morning, I, I was on a, in my home office, I was on a treadmill. I was watching a movie. I forget what movie it was. And my wife was working out in the bonus room down the hall, and she walks in, and she says, something happened at the World Trade Center. So I got off and turned it on, and of course, we're seeing those first skeletal reports. And then it becomes apparent that, uh, you know, as the replay comes in, that uh, this was, you know, this, this was deliberate. We're all trying to process this, and I'm beginning to think. I, I was scheduled to be off that day. I was off on weekdays because right. I was doing weekends outside the lines and sports centers on Sunday morning and, and whatnot. And it, gradually, it becomes more and more apparent that this is, a, this is not an error. This is an act of terrorism. And finally, I pick up the phone and I call Norby Williamson, who you know now is a senior executive of the company. At the time, was basically in charge of much of the news gathering side of SportsCenter and, and working with us uh, so-called talent. <laughs> and I was on the phone with him. And I said, you know, what are we going to do? All of us are in a world of indecision, like as yeah. you just described. And I was on the phone with him, and we're both looking at the same images as the second tower fell. And we both went speechless. And then I remember saying to him, uh, give, me, give me 45 minutes to shave and shower, I'll be in. And that was it, hung up. And I'm driving in, it's about a 25-minute ride. We lived in Burlington, Connecticut at the time. I remember seeing, like, work crews, you know, working on, you know, the side of the road. And everybody had stopped working, listening to their... Or radios and whatnot, and it was just. And my wife was going over to school to pick up our our older daughter, trying to make sense of it all. And then into work we come, and then you know, there you and I are in a newsroom where it, at that point, I guess ESPN was rebroadcasting the ABC News signal. 
Right. That's exactly what was going no, on on all our channels. Tronomix. If you remember those first hours, I mean, there were estimates of the death toll when those two towers had fallen, and, and, and we're trying to get some sense of the scope of the enormity. They're talking about 25,000 people could have perished. You know, uh, obviously, it ended up being a lot less. So that was the fog of indecision that we were walking into, and everybody was just gobsmacked. I mean, it was it was our generation's Pearl Harbor. Yeah, and, and I just I remember being in the office, and no one was really sure what we were going to do that day. You know, that we had yeah. ske- we scheduled a six o'clock show at that time, and you know, I, I just I remember just walking like. So many times that day, just looking like, what am I doing here? Like, why are we here? What's the point? And that sort of was, it sort of permeated throughout the entire morning and then into early afternoon. And, and I was just like, my thought process at the time was, what could we possibly do or say today that would have any meaning or any significance whatsoever? And I remember this very clearly. We were all sitting in Norby's office and you were like, this, this happened today. And we should chronicle what happened today as it relates to sports, period. As these events related and affected and ultimately canceled everything that was going on. And I had a real internal conflict about that at the time. And I wasn't sure if it was the right thing to do. But it wasn't long after we decided to do that that I knew that you had made the right decision and your instincts were correct. Well, I appreciate that, but I mean, Liz, I, I, I recall that those meetings, a couple of them actually, yeah. and I, I remember you being there, and I remember you weren't alone in that feeling, yeah. and it was, it was a very correct human reaction uh, to what we were seeing as more and more details came in, and the scope of this and the enormity of this tragedy became apparent, and, and I expressed the opinion. I'm a big history buff. Sure. Um, you and I are recording this on the day after Kabul is falling, and that. Yeah. And I, I was just talking to somebody else this morning. I mean, I've been to Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, and I've toured the presidential palace, which is left exactly as it was in '75 when when the, the North Vietnamese overran that nation. And so, the, the the circularity of those images are flying through my head as you and I are talking now about 9/11. But I also remember say, saying, I think I said, and I know I felt, I, I I I absolutely to the to the roof respected everybody else's input. Nobody was wrong that day. Correct. The, the only linear, the only binary decision we had to make was, are we going to do a show or not? Yeah. And, you know, eventually it was decided we would do one show. It was at 7 p.m., I believe. Right. Yep, 7 o'clock. And, um, and it, would, it would then be repeated because I don't think emotionally that people were equipped to do more than that that day. Yeah. And uh, certainly logistically it would have been difficult. So there we were with, a, with one hour to do a show at 7 o'clock. Yeah. And I remember, I think we were waiting for the president to speak. Uh, that was something that yeah. was going on. Yes. And I remember we started the show and, you know, we had some guests and we, we, we obviously took what the, what the president, President Bush was saying at that time. And I remember Steve Anderson, one of the senior executives at the time, came down and said, like, after 45 minutes or so, hey, can you guys keep going? And I, 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 that's what I remember more than anything else is that it was supposed to be an hour show. I think we ended up being on for, what, two and a half, three hours because mm-hmm. we just kept getting more guests that might have been just, another day, but I, I mean, yeah. it, I got to tell you, looking back, the whole week's a blur. Right. Because we yeah. did a show of whatever length it was that night. Right, right. And then we came back Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, 
and did essentially day-long sports centers during the day. Correct. Uh, I think we had, we had shown that there was a respectful way to do this, uh, to do this sh show. I, I will tell you, as to the decision whether to do a show or not, and, and I, you and I have talked about this, I think I told yeah. you, uh, recently, and I don't know if it's still there at the 9-11 Museum because it was not a permanent exhibit, but there was an exhibit about sports in 9-11. Yeah. And I had not visited the museum until, I think, about a year and a half ago, uh, be just before COVID hit, and this exhibit was up. And central to the exhibit is a TV monitor. And what is it showing, Trey? But you and me... Crazy. Uh, and the first seven or eight minutes of that show. Yeah. And to... That's powerful enough. It was like, I was just flipping blown away by that. Here we are. I mean, you walk around that museum and all the the artifacts, the mementos, the remembrances of, of that horror are just around you everywhere. And for us to be a, have a, you know, for your face to be there, like, well, but then uh, it was a very dark room, that exhibit. And I stepped back and I wanted, just, I wanted to just run my own little experiment, as it were. And other people came in. And I, and I actually snapped a picture or two because I just had to record this moment. Now, other people watching it, some of them who could not have been old enough to really have a working memory of 9-11. And let's face it, right. unless you're 35 or older now, you really don't have a cogent, mature memory of that day. Correct. Um, and it was amazing how people were transfixed by it as they, they watched that whole clip all the way through. And to me, it said, well, you know, what, however, any, however respectfully everybody felt that day, here we are a generation later, and the historical record holds up. So that, that, was, that was one of the most emotional things I think I've ever seen, to watch people watch us in the context of being in that museum. Yeah, and, and the, the, the weird thing about it is, you know, that day has special meaning for me in a, in a different way than I think a lot of people, because obviously we, we, we were all just trying to figure it out. Yeah. Literally, the whole point, like, like you said, there was no wrong decision to be made that day because none of us really knew what we were doing. Yeah. We were just trying to adapt to this thing that, had, like you said, it was our generation's Pearl Harbor. I mean, we had never had something like this happen to us on our soil in our lifetime. But, you know, this, this sounds terrible, but I think it's also somewhat accurate. Like, one of my best memories of all those years at ESPN was being able to do that show with you that day. Yeah. And again, I want to be 100% clear. I wish the day had never happened. Oh, right. I don't yes. want, yeah. I don't, that's not what I'm saying, but it meant something for me to do it with you. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I know, you know, and we'll, you know, I think we've talked about this publicly, but every 9-11 since we've always, yeah. wherever we are, usually in different sides of the country or not the same. Right space we always make a, a point to reach out and just contact each other uh, about that because of uh, it's a shared experience and the people who were in the control room feel the yeah. same way and i hear from them on 9-11 like alita Whitoft was among those um and we we went you know, tuesday wednesday thursday the whole week just trying to report and what the things that to report i mean i remember we had bud selig on yep. the then commissioner of baseball who it was fascinating because he knew George W. Bush as well as anybody that I know. I, I'd met George W. Bush when he owned the Rangers, and he helped me acquire an interview with his father back during the 92 campaign. Um, but I wanted to talk to Bud. And I will remember this very distinctly because it was a 
every all of us were emotionally back on our heels, and, and Bud pops up on the two-way, and we're on the air with this. And I said, Commissioner Bud Silly, Bud, how are you? And he says, no, and he says, I'm fine, Bob. How are you? And it was that was the kind we we had yeah. a national sense of looking out for each other yeah. that probably has not existed since then. Um, sadly, we're, that's sadly accurate. we're as far from that now as you could ever be. Right. Um, but and, and talking to to Bud about, you know, the man he knew and, you know, not that he had any great insights, but it was good to talk to somebody who could speak about the president of the United States, who at that point was had to be the loneliest man in the world who knew him well from business and personal dealings. And the other thing about that week in terms of how it related to sports, I, I think you and I both sort of had the same feeling that whatever the NFL was going to do was going to be the domino that would fall. Because I, I remember we went on, and I think it was either that night or the next night, we had the commissioner of the SEC on, and they were thinking about going ahead and playing that weekend. Well, what they they were were going to do was, if you remember, they were going to make a $1 million donation to the Red Cross, but then play the games. Um, And I think that there was a pretty strong current of editorial pushback on that. Um, That, you know, in retrospect, the SEC, I think, retrenched, rethought, and and saved themselves from their... from the, the largest mistake that Pete Rosell ever had. We did an out several last yep. episodes. Remember, we had um, Jack Kemp on yep. uh, years ago, the former vice presidential candidate for the, for the GOP, who was a player in the AFL that weekend. and talking Quarterback about, for the Bills. Yeah, yeah. And playing foot, the NFL played in 63 into the day he yeah. passed. Pete Rosell said that was his largest mistake. And uh, history records that Paul Tagli, who rose at that moment, sent the staff home. Somebody in that NFL office, if I recall correctly, had some con... I don't know whether they lost someone or they knew... It it hit close to the NFL family. Uh, Folks, you know, uh, went out... So the NFL, I think, it took a day or two. But obviously, you know, they had to, you know, loop in their business partners. And they had that... Frankly, they had the bye week of the Super Bowl week to to cushion them. Correct. We ended up on outside the lines the next Sunday doing a 90-minute special because there was no NFL football. We called it Silent Sunday. and still, still one of the shows I'm proudest of. But, yeah, the NFL was walking carefully, but I, I think they knew from the drop what they had to do. You know, it's interesting you mentioned Paul. He went into the Hall of Fame just right. this past Not weekend as we were recording yeah. this. Yeah, and I was there actually uh, working it. I, I ran up and talked to him about that a little bit. So it's, it's, it's funny that you brought that up today because we had a, we had a little conversation yeah. about that decision uh, just not too long ago from when we're recording this. Um, I, I do remember one thing you said on the air along those lines, which I thought was very poignant, but also very much out of character for you because you, you were so speaking from the heart. We were having this conversation. I can't remember what day it was that the NFL decided to cancel. Uh, but we were having a, a conversation with somebody about it, and they came back to you after the interview. And it, you, I, to, I remember this as clear as it was yesterday. You said, please, God, don't let them play these games. And that is so out of character <laughs> for you. You know, the, the, you, are, you are the journalistic beacon for so many of us, which has sort of been eschewed everywhere in the world yeah. we live in now. But it was just, I remember looking at you and I was like, wow. You were just it, you were just being so honest about how you felt about it, which is something that you know you've always tried to not do yeah. in your career. Put that part of it out there because that's irrelevant. But it, that's that's how raw everything was that week. Yeah, um, 
I don't remember. I remember feeling that way. Um, I'm yeah. glad you, you, know, you have a recollection. I said it on the air. I don't know if it was in reference to the SEC or the NFL. I don't, I don't know. Um, but, you know, you grew up in Connecticut. I grew up in New York. I mean, this was our backyard or our front yeah. yard. And we, yeah. you know, still didn't know if we knew anybody, if we'd lost anybody or anyone was missing. But it was right there. Uh, and that's, you know, I think initially, I think in that first week, I think there was a geographic um, factor to how you reacted to this. I mean, if you're an American, obviously you're pissed off, you're angry, you wanted, you know, the the, the country to respond as, as well as it could. But I think if you were, but the SEC's initial exploration of playing the games, I think, may have reflected their 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 geographic distance from where all of this happened. Yeah. Um, but you know, when you know the Giants, and I remember some of the sound bites, and if, if some of this actually might have been part of the exhibit at, at the 9/11 Museum, but and they were saying, you know, we're standing on our practice field, and we can see. It actually had to be afterwards because it was from the day. But the point was, the Jets yeah. and Giants could stand there at Giant Stadium, and they could smell and see the right. smoke. The smoke lingered for weeks. Yeah. I remember going to Brooklyn the next week to do some reporting. Um, <laughs> Talk about things. 20 years ago, walking into an Arab elementary school, um, the equivalent of a yeshiva, if you will, for, for the Muslim faith, and talking to kids, and the principal was happy to facilitate interviews with kids. And these youngsters in the 6th, 7th, 8th grade were telling us already, in a week, 10 days after 9-11, the, the uh, slurs, the anger that they were facing from people because of the way they dressed and professed their faith and they attended a Muslim school. And it was, and, and you would walk out to Prospe, uh, Prospect Park across from the river, and still all of those missing posters were up. Yeah. And if you were missing, you were gone. If you donated blood, right. you know, it was not needed. That's, those are the things that I recall. Right. From that day specifically, I remember all the people, uh, the doctors that said whatever you need, and they rushed to be wherever yeah. they were, whether it was a hospital or fire stations, for all those people they thought were coming in, mm. and nobody came in. Like, that's one of the most poignant visual memories I have of all those people there ready to help and it took a while to realize there wasn't going to be anybody they could help it it didn't matter Um, why don't don't we take a quick break right here and when we come back we'll talk about the aftermath because it wasn't just that day it was a gradual process and how sports really helped along those lines getting the nation uh, back on our feet back with Bob Lee in a very special episode of Half Forgotten History right after this Overcoming the odds, rewriting the playbook, delivering under pressure. The MVPs of small business lead their teams to victory all year long. And Visa is proud to provide playmakers everywhere with more tools to help grow their business and help them achieve even greater success. Because the more people we can empower, the more we all win. Visa, a network working for everyone. Hey everybody, Trey Wingo here to tell you that NFLSundayTicket.tv is like having front row seats to every out-of-market game all season long, every Sunday afternoon. No matter where you live, that is a lot of football. And guess what? This season you get more football than ever before. 18 weeks of NFL glory right there in front of you, streamed to your favorite device. Just picture this scenario with me. You sit down, you put your feet up, kick back, eat snacks, and watch an insane amount of NFL football every Sunday afternoon. So make your seat a front row seat and catch every second of your favorite players and your favorite teams every Sunday afternoon. Now to see if you're eligible for this, make sure you go to nflsundayticket.tv slash sundayready and stream every NFL Sunday ticket game this season to follow your favorite team no matter where you live. 
Use promo code WINGO2021 at checkout to get 15% off. Exclusive discounts also available. Select international games excluded. Eligibility restrictions do apply. Compatible device required. Data charges may apply. All right, back with my good friend and longtime colleague at ESPN, Bob Lee, on this episode of Half Forgotten History as we honor the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And we did basically most of that week, you and I exclusively did SportsCenter. Um, and there, you know, you, you and I said it before the break, you were correct in saying we document what happened. And that's why we did a show on 9-11. And then I think the days after 9-11, the rest of that week, you really saw how sports could help a nation that was hurting. You know, the, one of the first things I remember is they used the parking lot at Shea Stadium yeah. as basically a triage center, you know, a, a place where they could just make sure everything needed to happen. And then slowly things began to sort of come back and how sports helped us get through what was really just one of the worst periods of our lifetime. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the Patriots with the Joe Andrusi, right? Yeah, My brother absolutely. was a fireman. And I think he ran out. Brother. Several brothers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, who was very prominent that very day at Patriot Camp and through the week. He, he was he was kind of a face of the NFL's, you know, how, how the NFL is impacted. And um, so he, he ran the flag out the following Sunday. And the NFL did not play. Right. That would have been, what, the, the 16th. And then the 23rd, yeah. the games came back. Uh, I'm a Met fan. So you know what? That game was incredible. About, uh I remember um, interviewing Chipper Jones, who murdered the Mets for a generation. And I, I, I said this on the air. I said, I'm a Met fan. He was, he was yeah. promoting his book. And then we had a great chat on Outside the Lines. I said, I have all the respect in the world for you as a ball player, but I was chanting Larry at you when you were playing, playing at Chase Stadium. But I asked him about 9-11. And he, he was out in the outfield. And he says, you know, there were honor guards out there with a 21-gun salute before the, the, the fateful game. Um, with Piazza's home run, he picked up shell casings, and he still has them. At that point, it was like 18 or 19 years later. And on the 10th anniversary of 9-11, anniversary almost sounds like a celebration, commemoration, if you will. Sure. Uh, I went down to, they did it on a Sunday, and uh, I went down to help uh, baseball uh, coverage on it. Uh, they had an hour pregame, and I was there with Bobby Valentine. And now it's really easy to, you know, you want to, Talk about Bobby Valentine, his failed year with the Red Sox, and his easy guy to lampoon. But as you mentioned, this is a stand-up guy. That yep. When the shit hit the fan after 9-11, he was there for hours, not asking for coverage, just asking for help, getting supplies and getting it all together. Bobby was there, and Mike Piazza was there. And these guys were not close, clearly. Yeah, no. But we rolled in a feature uh, that uh, Tom Rinaldi, our good friend, uh, had produced about um, a family of a deceased, I believe, firefighter uh, who uh, met Mike before and after that game. And, of course, Piazza's home run is just Google it. It's It, it was a moment. Like, one uh, of the that top was, ten moments in baseball history. It, right? It has to be. That was that was a moment, uh, for people that don't remember, it was one of the first games back. First game in New York. First game in New York back, and Mike Piazza hits the game-winning home run. And, like, even the Braves were like, this is how it was supposed to be. I mean, th they knew, right? It, it was just that moment that, like, yes, we can yeah. do this. We're going to get through this. And sports is a way that's going to help us get through this. Well, even before the game, remember, through the 90s, these teams were out at hammer and tongue. Yeah. And the Mets were always 
second, with rare exceptions, right? Yeah. The Braves own that NL East, and they were. This was a bitter, bitter rivalry. But before the the game, as they were doing a commemoration, and the Mets were wearing the hats of all the emergency services, cops, fire, EMTs, Port Authority, police, whatever. Teams are lined up on the on the respective foul lines, and then they said, "Let's play ball," basically, and then spontaneously, the two teams met exchanging hugs and handshakes before the game, which shows you the depth of, of just how the status quo had just been thrown asunder by this. Yeah. And then, of course, in the eighth inning, Piazza hits that home run, and this is all part of the feature that we roll in, and I'd interview, I had been talking before we rolled it in with, with Bobby and with Mike, and we come out, and Mike's a mess, and rightfully so. I mean, it's just, you know, he's really, I mean, not just the home run, but the impact it had on this family, the wife, and the three kids who were there and whatnot, and he had signed it back for them on a ball, and it's an incredibly emotional story. And, and Mike started to apologize for being emotional on the air. I said, dude, this yeah. is live television. I said, you have nothing to apologize for. It's one of those moments you just let sit, let yeah. it go. And it, maybe it's out there on YouTube, maybe it's not. But it was... Um, it was a great moment to share with Bobby and Mike, and it just showed you even t at that point, 10 years on, the impact. In 20 years, I still have trouble talking about it. It's still tough. Well, it's, it's hard to believe that it's been that long already. You know, and, yeah. and it wasn't just those few days afterwards. It, it lingered. Like, when, when the Yankees finally made it to the World Series, and they're playing the Diamondbacks, and, you know, I don't care who you voted for. I don't care what your political affiliations are. That moment when President Bush walked out to that mound, and obviously he was wearing a flak jacket underneath, but stood there and basically said, here I am, take your best shot, and delivered a bullet of a strike yeah. over the plate. I, I, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps just talking yeah. about it right now, still, I, you know? I, I talked to him uh, about it a couple of years later at the White House. Uh, we were interviewing him for uh, a series of things. And he was gracious. Uh, it was the same time he announced that I think he was sending his father to lead the delegation to the 2004 um, uh, uh, Athens Olympics. Right. And he told me the story, and he just and we mentioned it several times since about how he was downstairs and he knew everybody because remember George W. Bush again, whether you like him or not, as president or Republican, Democrat, whatever, uh, owned the Texas Rangers and, and had a lot of his own money in, in, at stake and knew everybody in baseball and loves baseball and knows baseball cold and had been talked about at one point as, as, he, as a commissioner. And so he's under the stands before the game and the security around Yankee Stadium, I was not there that night, but the security was unlike anything you'll ever see again, given what had happened just, what, seven or eight miles south of there a couple of weeks earlier. And Derek Jeter comes up to him and Jeter knew W. says, you know, you got to throw from the mound. Yeah. If you don't throw from the mound, they're going to boo you. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so he borrowed a glove, and he, he warmed up. And, yeah, he's wearing he's wearing that Yankee jacket, but the, the Kevlar underneath. Um, and, uh, you know, we, there, there's been a movie produced about that. I think the ESPN aired it a few years ago. And in the toxic times we now live in, there are still people, even internally, that had some problems with that running uh, without an examination of everything. We're not going to do the story of the, Iran, no. uh, of the Iraq War, of, of whatever, Operation right. whatever. It's that moment, and that moment was special. It was, um, in essence, sort of like um, uh, FDR in front of Congress, December 8, yeah. 1941.
Very much so. And even after that, uh, he decided to throw from the mound. And then Jeter turned back and said, and if you don't throw a strike from the mound, they'll boo you too. So, yeah. you know, he, it's he New was, York, baby. It's, yeah, <laughs> deliver or get out of here, you know. But but it, it's it's funny because it just kept going, right? Like that first Sunday afterwards when all the teams ran out carrying the flags. And you mentioned Joe Andrusi on the 23rd. I remember watching John Gruden, who was then still coaching uh, the Bucks, just the tears streaming down his eyes, and how the protocols of 9-11 linger to this day. Like, this, that Super Bowl that year uh, afterwards was in New Orleans. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I remember tanks in the streets in New Orleans. We were down there. I'm like, oh, my God, there are literal tanks in the streets. And we were doing a, a pregame uh, show, radio show pr- before the Super Bowl on ESPN Radio, and word came in that Bob Kraft had left his credential and couldn't get in the building. And like, <laughs> if, any, if anybody should oh, you I'm the owner of the team that's playing. And he's like, no, no, I totally understand. We had to go back to his hotel, get his credential, otherwise he would not have gotten in to see arguably one of the greatest endings in Super Bowl history. Right. I mean, but but that's that's how sort of buttoned up everything was and that's how everybody sort of understood hey i get it this is what we have to do because of what just happened right but at the same time um and i remember we i i I remember the show we did on outside the lines on sunday of that week either super bowl sunday or the week before the super bowl about the politicization of the super bowl and we had Arizona Congressman J.D. Hayworth, who was a former sportscaster who I'd gotten to know in some trips to Washington, who later uh, lost his seat when he uh, attempted to challenge John McCain in a Republican primary, and um, uh, Al Franken, who at the time was not Senator Al Franken, but was just Al Franken humorist, talking about this. Off air, it was apparent these guys knew each other, which I thought was funny because JD was for you know he was left and right. But again, twenty years ago, you could have those friendships and and, and even advertise them in public and talking about that. But of course, since nine eleven, you know, I, I think there has been a story with the NFL and and patriotism that uh, you know there. Some people think it's over. I I think it's overdone as well. Larger the flag, the more the patriotism. Flags the size of the field. Correct. The program yeah. that they involved in with it, taking DOD money to to do things. I, I, I think that the NFL has never missed a chance to align itself with the media uh, at the same time while promoting causes that wouldn't necessarily align with that, you know, with social equity and social justice. It's been an interesting ballet. Um, so I, I think we've had too much of that it's just a football game, but at the time, all of those, all of those events were all wrapped into everything. Special meaning, and you know the other stories that we would investigate. Of uh, there was a third Division three basketball player outside of New York City who insisted who was Muslim and, and a woman, and uh, insisted you know played in her full uh, job uh, attire uh, and was getting some grief for that, uh, and so it, it opened a whole window for those of us who were looking to do stories like that. These stories kept presenting themselves one thing that really struck me because i went to the super bowl and i came home for two days and then i was going to cover the olympics in salt lake and as as it turned out i found out the person sitting next to me on my plane was an air marshal you know and uh how do you find out someone's an air marshal he tells uh, you she actually it was a she 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 told me she get her butt fired well i I don't know what happened afterwards but uh you know and that's why I never publicly stated her name anywhere. But uh, she said, you know, um, 
as we're flying to the Olympics, she's like, we're not really concerned about the Olympics because we think we've got that pretty buttoned down, which I thought was weird because it's a much larger expanse and right. there's certainly. But she said, I got to tell you, we were terrified about the Super Bowl. We were terrified that something else was going to happen at the Super Bowl because, you know, it's so densely packed in a central yeah. location. I was like, boy, I'm glad I didn't know that now before. You know, I'm glad you found, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you told me that after. You know, and, <laughs> and that's sort of the other thing, Bob, that at some point there was so much stress that whole, whole first week, you have to find some sort of an outlet, right? You had to find something, some sense of something to just alleviate stress. And you, you will appreciate this story. At one point, our good friend Seth Markman, who is now a, oh, yeah. you know, a grand poobah and master of time, space, and dimension in the NFL coverage at ESPN. And we were sitting there next to the printer in the old newsroom printing up a rundown or something. And I looked at him and I said, hey, that's a really nice shirt. He goes, yeah, I got it for like five bucks at a Goodwill store. And then he said, wait a minute, I, I got these pants for five bucks at the same Goodwill store and these shoes. Holy shit, Trey, my entire outfit I got at the Goodwill store for like 20 bucks. And it, it's not that funny, but we couldn't stop laughing for like 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Like, it was just like, he, you know, Seth has this really stupid laugh. Where he goes, ha, 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 ha. You know, like, you I know, know like it that. well. <laughs> you know, do well. And he did it. And I just, when I saw him do it, I started, like, we could not stop laughing for about 15 minutes. We just, we needed a reason to laugh. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And at, that was the hard part after it because you, you just you didn't want to be disrespectful in any way, shape, or form about anything, and you had to be serious. But at some point, you just needed to get it out. You just needed to find a way to alleviate some of the stress by the stupidest things in the world. And his $20 Goodwill outfit gave us a 20-minute break from the dretchery that was that week, and we needed it. Yeah, I, I don't know how many years it was, but... Um... Larry David, um, in his brilliant HBO series, actually mined the horror of 9-11 for a respectful but hilarious joke. Yeah. And as you're sitting there laughing at, at this episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, and it had to do with somebody had a, um, a picture of someone on their desk. Oh, he died on 9-11. Oh, you know, that's horrible. And it, a few moments later, he was a bicycle messenger. He was hit by a bus on 57th Street. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you start to, am I allowed to laugh? It's like when I saw yeah. fiction in the movies, you know. Right. It, are we allowed to laugh at this? Is it and okay it, to do that? Yeah. You know, it, yeah, and eventually, like, I feel bad laughing, but, like, it's yeah. it's crafted with respect, but at the same time, you have to laugh at, at that construct. It took a yeah. while. It did, did take a while. Well, I tell you what, why don't we take a quick break, another quick break, and when we come back, we'll wrap this up uh, with uh, my very good friend and longtime colleague, Bob Lee. This episode of Half Forgotten History is brought to you by Starbucks Triple Shot Energy Extra Strength Coffee Beverage in a Can. That's Starbucks coffee that you love, ready to drink, offered in classic flavors, and now in zero sugar. They have four core flavors, vanilla, dark roast, cafe mocha, and caramel, and now also offering two zero sugar flavors, black and vanilla. Both are zero sugar and dairy-free. What gives you your energy? Find your Starbucks Triple Shot Energy online or at your local store. All right, back with Bob Lee uh, on this uh, great episode of Half Forgotten History commemorating the 20th uh, anniversary of 9-11 and the shows that we did together. Um, you know, that it had lasting impact for me. And, you know, like we said at the top, you and I to this every year have reached out. And there's another person that, uh, you know, there's a guy at ESPN that's still there. His name is Pete McConville. You know, oh, I think he lost guy. 
lost five or six of his dearest friends. They all worked at Cantor Fitzgerald. And so, you know, I've always sort of reached out to him along these same days. And, you know, we, we sort of alluded to it now, uh, you know, how everyone came together after 9-11. It didn't matter. We were Americans first. Is there any chance we can find that again? I, I don't know. Um, I would hate to think that it would take something approaching the scale of what we were subjected to 20 years ago. Uh, I, I look at, you know, one of the, one of the reasons um, I don't miss being involved in the daily push-pull yeah. of news is at the very, uh, my profession, journalism, I think, has been totally redefined, in some cases debased. Yep. I think that the ability for the American mind popularly to hold opposing views in your head and understand that it's not 140 characters, that there's a place for critical thinking, there's a place for nuance, but it doesn't. there's not enough of it out there. Uh, we, we're, we're, we seem to be looking for the, the quick, easy answer uh, that's definitive, binary, black and white, and, uh, you know... The unwillingness to give the Trump administration any credit for Project Warp Speed, um, uh, the, the, you know, for example, just an example of the toxicity that exists in the political landscape. I'm sure that comment will get you a few comments on Twitter to begin with. Uh, I don't know. I, I wish it did. I do know it's a you know it's a generational thing. You know, you and I are um, our parents now, if not our grandparents. I'm a grandparent, and. Um, you know, the, the, as Kennedy said, the torch has been passed to a new generation and uh, with their own ideas. I hope they make it work. I, you know, I just hope that, uh, uh, that, that capitalism survives and patriotism survives. Yeah. Let, let me ask you this, because you mentioned being a parent. Uh, I'll, t I'll tell a story, and I'd love to get your perspective uh, from your kids. I remember literally a few days after 9-11, uh, we went to the grocery store. Chelsea had to be nine, ten. And I said, I'm going to the grocery store. I'll be right back. And I was, I was in an open air Jeep and she ducked down like this. And I said, what are you doing? She goes, well, in case someone starts shooting at us, I don't want to be hit. You know, and you, you don't think about it at the time, but you realize how much it affected them in that moment. Was there, was there a moment for you with your kids like that or something that really got to them? Uh, our younger daughter was living in New York. Um, <laughs> She attended uh, Columbia Barnard, and uh, there are a couple of incidents that would come up, and she'd let us know, don't worry, but if you see this on Twitter or whatever, I mean, um, you know, just the other day there was a shooting in D.C. that closed down the uh, metro station close to her, and it's to the point where you almost, it, it's sad, but you take it in stride. Um, yeah. But it, uh, the responsibility, you know, you, when you become a grandparent, it it becomes it becomes you know logarithmic. It, it expands even more because you realize you know that uh, you know it's several generations now that you, you just hope will 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 get the good out of all of this. And 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 but as a twenty years, um, you got to be thirty five. Everybody under thirty five, I think, uh, if if you're watching this, find find your parents, find a friend, find a neighbor yeah. who's that age, and ask them about that day. Because I remember talking to my parents about Pearl Harbor and uh, about living through the Depression and dealing with all of that. And there are great books you can read and you can make personal memoirs and whatnot, but nothing beats a personal conversation. What was that day? What did it mean and how does it still affect us? Yeah. Uh, because it's, it's just a, a chapter 
on the internet for so many people now, and it was it, it remains much more than that. No, no, no question. You know, find the good is is a great way to sort of leave yeah. it. And uh, let me just say this, and I, I sent this once to you in an email, and I meant it then, and I mean it now, uh, as we are both uh, uh, gone from where we worked for many, many years. Um, if I could have picked my career to model someone that was my coworker at ESPN, it would have been you. Oh, thanks, buddy. And, it means uh, a great deal. Thank you. I, no, I, there, we, the times we worked together, we never had we never had a bad time. We always had a good time, no. and that 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 experience, as horrible as it was, um, is I, I I cherish having done that, especially because I did it with you. So thank you. Yeah. Well, best best to you and the fam, and continue thanks, to live the good life and. Uh, Let's let's uh, let's find another reason to catch up besides this the next time, all right? Yeah, with adult beverages and the like. Score. So once again, my thanks to Bob Lee for joining us on our recollections of that horrible, horrible day and, and what happened going forward. You know, I'm I'm very grateful that I got a chance to work with Bob uh, on 